And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. We've got a very good episode for you today. We're going to be taking a look at the second of the three Dai, uh, Daimajin films, which is a return of Daimajin. We also have the next issue of the uh, Marvel Comics Godzilla, which features the finale of the Mega Monsters storyline that we followed for the last couple of issues. I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at a couple of portable uh, Ultraman games for various Game Boy formats. Um, I know that took an episode took a little while to get to you because of the uh, audio issues I had previously, but we appear to be up and running, and uh, we got a great show today. So, a couple of news items real quick. The trailer has dropped for the film adaptation of Rampage. This is an adaptation of the classic Midway video game. Uh, this went uh, in the middle of November. Rampage stars Dwayne Johnson. It is directed by Brad Payton, and the writer is Carlton Cuse. Now, this is interesting because all three of them are reunited from the film San Andreas, which was actually quite good despite being uh, superficially just kind of a dumb disaster action movie. It was actually a, a pretty good movie. As I said, this is based on the classic Midway video game, and it involves a benevolent gorilla named George, who is mutated into a giant monster, and Johnson, who plays his zoological caretaker, is trying to save him. The trailer looks like a spin on the game, but still hits uh, the giant monster smashing through the city while the military attacks some theme, which was prevalent in Rampage. I have a lot of uh, a lot of good memories of playing the old Sega Master System version of Rampage with my brother. Uh, very, very uh, fun arcade-style game. We just, you know, roam around a city, climbing up buildings, smashing them, and hope trying not to get uh, get uh, hurt when you fall off the building. Uh, Johnson always brings his A-game to every project, so this looks like it'll be a fun monster mash. Uh, it's got a spring release date of April 20th. This reminds me of the late March release of Power Rangers last year, which similarly was a fun kind of uh, uh, sci-fi action mashup at the... Uh, at the theater. So between this film and Pacific Rim Uprising, uh, we've got two really good-looking Daikaiju movies coming to theaters in the first half of 2018, so that's something to look forward to. And of course, we will uh, give, any, give updates on these films as we approach their release date, which is really not that far away. We're closing in here, uh, as I'm recording this, we're at the tail end of November of 2017, so March and April 2018 are not that far away, guys. It's, uh, it's amazing what happens Time continually marches on. Uh, speaking of theatrical releases, Godzilla Planet of the Monsters was released in Japan on no this past November 17th. This, of course, is the first feature-length animated film starring the King of the Monsters. It reached number three in its opening weekend in Japan, earning 103 million yen, which is approximately uh, $925,000 in U.S. dollars. It's expected and predicted to draw about 600 million yen total, which is a $5.3 million dollars. 
uh, draw. Uh, this doesn't seem like much, but you got to remember the Japanese film market is much, much smaller than uh, a lot of other major markets in the world. There's just that many less people in Japan. It's always amusing to me when we get a genre film and someone say, well, it hasn't opened in Japan yet. It's like, if you're counting on Japan to pad your bottom line, then you're not paying attention because the Jap you know, even the top grossing film in Japan might make $10 million in its run. And that's, you know, in, in, the, day, uh, in the, the day we live in now where you need a uh, international draw of upwards of 500 million tens kind of a drop in the bucket. Uh, it will be released internationally on Netflix, but as of right now, no date has been announced. So hopefully we'll hear something on that pretty soon. We just got some good news about Mystery Science Theater 3000 returning to Netflix, so maybe we'll get an announcement about Godzilla Planet of the Monsters. And one last bit, I want to give a big shout-out and a big thank you to a friend of the show, Mark Kalmbach. Mark is a uh, well-known member of the Two True Freaks community, and uh, I recently got a package from Mark with some comics, and he did an amazing depiction of Megalon on the envelope, and this is fantastic. He's got a great cartoony style. It's a really nice piece of art. I am going to scan this and put this up on the Facebook page so that everyone can see it and I can share Mark's amazing work with you guys. I just wanted to say in, in a public forum, thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate the effort and this great picture of Megalon. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to, I guess, uh, bag and board or frame up this envelope so that we can uh, preserve this amazing depiction of Megalon. So thank you once again, Mark. If you have any news that is is, uh, suitable for Earth Destruction Directive, please go ahead and send it in to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com and we'll get it here on the air. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with the return of Daimajin. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to do it. You might want to only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular and then if you go out of that it scrambles to a and it doesn't fast enough so it's better to just set it up oh, okay it, do, it really doesn't work well so i checked right. uh i checked my uh mm -hmm. well, my okay it definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us join back to the bins every week for goodness solomon grundy hate voiceovers all right we are back here on earth destruction directive the Return of Daimajin was released in Japan under the title Daimajin Ikaru on August 13th, 1966, a mere four months after the original Daimajin. The dub version was released to U.S. television as Return of the Giant Majin by AIP sometime in 1968, and has never received a theatrical release in the U.S., much like the other uh, Daimajin films. Our director is Kenji Masumi. Now, this is not a name that may be familiar to Daikaiju fans, but this he is a director of many, many samurai films uh, called Chanbara in Japanese, including many of the Lone Wolf and Cub films over at Toho and the classic Shogun Assassin, which is very well known here in the United States. The writer is Tetsuro Yoshida, who also wrote um, uh, Yokai Monster Spook Warfare for Dai. Music is by Akira Ifukube. The special effects are by Yoshiyuki Kuroda, 
who he did the other Daimajin films as well as Spook Warfare. The producer is Masaichi Nagata, and now Nagata is the producer of the Gamera films and actually all of the genre efforts at Dai. So some unfamiliar names and some familiar names mixed in there on the production crew. In feudal Japan, the peaceful villages of Chaigusa and Nagoshi both border opposite sides of Yakumo Lake, in the center of which lies a small island which is the home to their god, represented in the form of a Majin statue. These two villages are bordered by Mikoshiba, ruled by the cruel Lord Danjo. The citizens of Mikoshiba are constantly fleeing to Chagusa as refugees, where they are welcomed. Lord Danjo decides that he wants control of Chagusa and Nagoshi, and so he organizes a sneak attack during a festival between the two villages. The young Daimo, Lord Juro of Chagusa, manages to escape the attack, but the village falls before the warlord. Danjo then rides to Nagoshi, where the daimyo, Lord Hio, is killed and the princess Sayuri exiled. The new daimyo, Katsushiga, the son of Hio, is imprisoned and warned to produce Juro, or there will be a terrible price, to which Katsushiga replies that their god will protect them. Lord Danjo laughs and enacts his plan to destroy their god. Sending a team of men with copious amounts of black powder to the island, Lord Danjo's men line the statue with explosives and detonate it, destroying the statue. Sayuri, despite being within the blast range, is unharmed, and she continues to pray for the god's help. Lord Danjo continues his search for Juro, who works behind the scenes to try to help the villagers overthrow the usurpers. But Juro was eventually caught near the island, and him, Katsushiga, Sayuri, and various other villagers are to be publicly executed to demoralize the two villages into submission. Sayuri is hosted onto a cross to be burned at the stake when her prayers are answered. Daimajin rises up from the bottom of the lake, causing the waters to part, allowing him to walk to Nagoshi. The terrible god exacts brutal justice on the interlopers, resisting any and all attacks thrown at him. He crushes all resistance and removes Sayuri from danger. Lord Danjo, seeing that the tide has turned, tries to flee on a boat onto the lake. But Daimajin follows, using his powers to set the boat aflame. Trying to climb to safety, Lord Donjo ends up tangled on the mast and winds up burned at the stake himself before the boat is overcome with flames and sinks. The Sayuri runs out into the lake in gratitude to Daimajin. Her tears of joy touch the water. Daimajin's task finished, he returns himself to a mere statue and then disappears, leaving the two villages a chance to rebuild their peaceful lives. Wow, this I had never seen Return of Daimajin before. This is actually really, really good. Um, you know, the Daimajin films, all of them are a blend of Chanbara and Daikaiju. This one leans heavily on the Chanbara side for the first hour, but then the Daikaiju stuff comes up at the end, and man, this was a really enjoyable film that does a really good job of being representative of both genres that are in, that are make up the film. So let, let's get into the notes right here. The first thing you will notice as you watch this film because of the overture, I say overture, but the, you know, the the song being played over the opening credits, is a very familiar Ifukube score. Now, uh, Akira Ifukube would revisit motifs for his genre work quite a bit. Um, you know, King Ghidorah and King Kong have similar themes 
and certain other ones would get um, you know revisited and you know um, I, I hate to use the term remixed, but you, I think you know what I mean by that uh, in various uh, of his genre works. Now this one at least it's not at Toho, so it's not quite as noticeable as a Dai film, but it's very recognizable as soon as you hear it. You'll know it's Hibukube right from the start. Now very early on in the story, we see refugees from the uh, the village of Mikashiba coming in and paying tribute to the daimyo, and they're paying him tribute with bags of rice. And I thought this was a nice touch. This is actually a very uh, accurate uh, depiction of how tribute was paid in the feudal eras of Japan. Rice was uh, the common currency that everyone used because everyone grew and everyone ate. So a lot of times for the folks that lived on the land owned by the daimyo, they would pay him tribute in the form of certain amounts of rice. And the idea of how much rice a daimyo could produce on his land gave a relative idea of his wealth relative to all the other daimyos and the amount of influence that he could uh, that he could wield. Now, of course, in this case, it's actually Trojan rice because these giant bags of rice actually have um, you know soldiers from Mikashiba hiding in them. I thought that was a really clever bit and very much something I'd expect to see in a, a standard type of samurai story. So that's the thing about these early the the early parts of this film um, is that they very much are a straight Chanbara. So there's a lot of more straight samurai stuff, much like it was in, Dai, in the original Daimajin, where it's a samurai story through and through, and so the idea of a, you know, a, a jealous uh, a warlord conquering a village and killing the daimyo and sending the young daimyo into hiding and all that, this is all kind of standard stuff, but it's actually played really well. I think having uh, a really experienced Chambara director in Kenji Masumi really helps this film. The other one thing that really helps also is the scenery is absolutely perfect. They use a lot of location scenery. They shoot outside quite a lot. We see all these great temples, and uh, it's really very, very feudal, um, very well designed feudal uh, set pieces that they're on. It really sells the authenticity. You know, it's uh, and a lot of these um, you know ancient uh, buildings and such in Japan, they're not like uh, ancient Greek ruins where now they're ruined. They still look very similar to they did. How they did back in the day, so you can use them very good to shoot a, lo a location for a period film. A couple of times through the film, we actually see the villagers praying to Daimajin as an idol. So he really is a god. This is uh, very similar to how we see uh, the villagers on uh, Infant Island, that is on Infant Island, I should say, praying to Mothra or various other monster gods that have cropped up over the years. But uh, I like that Majin is specifically an idol. You know, they, they have faith that he will protect them and that he will. Um, you know, come to their aid. In fact, the dub even refers to him only as God. Uh, it doesn't even say, you know, Majin or anything like that. It's just God will save us. But they praying to him as an idol, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, normally in uh, Shinto, you wouldn't pray to an idol per se. You would pray to a, a deity, but the deity is not usually captured, at least not that I'm aware of, in the form of an idol. But here, obviously, we need the Majin statue because there has to be a physical representation of Daimajin before he comes to life. During the attack on Chigusa, Lord Juro manages to escape through a secret gate, which is then uh, collapsed behind him. This is a very kind of... This really made me smile as a great Chanbara element, the, the secret tunnel out of the village that the, uh, you know, the young lord takes to escape from the warlord kind of thing. There's a lot of the elements in this film which... Essentially, as I said, the first hour, which are very much standard samurai film stuff, but it's really well done. I mean, it might be a low-budget samurai movie, but it's still an enjoyable and well-paced one. And elements like that really made me smile, because the way that we think of westerns here in the United States is the way that samurai films kind of are in the East. You know, they're uh, you know a highly 
defined genre uh, setting in a, a specific period with specific stock characters and stock um, elements. And so they see them done here. It, it really is a, a very, very nice to see them in a genre film that mixes the two different genres together. At one point over in Nagoya, Lord Donjo says to uh, Lord Hiro, uh, he says, they, they're talking about the god and how the god will protect him. He says, I'd really like to meet him. And Hio says, keep it up and you will meet him. And that really made me laugh. That reminds me of the, uh, you know, if you want to talk to God, pray. If you want to meet him, text while driving. You know, So it's like, you, you keep this stuff up, you're going to meet our God up close and personal. And of course, Donjo just blows us off. And, oh, well, you know, this being a Daimajin movie, he does in fact get to see Daimajin up close and personal. And he is not exactly thrilled uh, with that. So I thought that was very, very funny. There's a scene with uh, Princess Sayuri at the uh, on the island uh, praying to Daimajin and imploring him to help. Um, it's almost a straight reuse of a piece of music from Godzilla 54. Uh, it's very, very noticeable. Again, I think Hube would reuse themes uh, for his genre work. This piece is also really well known among modern fans for the scene from Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah 91 where we see uh, Godzilla staring down. I forget the name of the character. But he is the, he was the uh, commander of the garrison on Ragos Island, and now he's become a successful businessman. And uh, Godzilla and him kind of had a staring contest in the building, and then Godzilla destroys him. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's, again, it's a nice piece of music. It's um, glad to hear it pop up, but you will get that feeling while watching this film that, hey, I know that piece of music. I know that piece of music. And you, it, it does become uh, kind of a theme that it's, it, it's clear, clearly Ifakube because you're recognizing some of his uh, motifs from other film. Now, when Donjo's men go and blow up Daimajin, that is a legitimate kaboom. I mean, this, they pack so much black powder in and around Daimajin. Now, when it goes up, it goes up, and there is no question about it. Um, then, uh, and all the, the pieces and everything fall into the water. Uh, we get the roiling water, which uh, normally, of course, represents something coming up from the water. In fact, we get that later. But here, it's showing that there's something in the water that the spirit of Daimajin is not happy with this. Uh, the other um, visual part of this that I really like is that there is a Tory gate that um, the villagers on the boats will sail through when they go to the island to pray to Daimajin. Well, the Tory gate is destroyed. And uh, if you don't know what a Tory gate is, a Tory gate is uh, the gate that is seen um, at, a, at a shrine, in a Shinto shrine, that defines the boundary between the mortal world and the spirit world. You, you, I guarantee you, if you're listening to this show, you know what one looks like, even if you don't, may not know that word, the Tori Gate. Um, it's, and it's, it's found at all Japanese Shinto shrines. If you go to a shrine, you will see a Tori Gate. And in fact, there's, uh, rules of etiquette about how you walk through the Tori Gate and then how you cleanse your hands and your mouth before you go, um, you know, pray to the, the deity and all that. So, but to show the destroyed gate like they do here, they kind of linger on it for a couple of seconds. It's to me, it really drives home the great disrespect that was done to Daimajin by Donjo and his men and to, to blow up this gate. And to me, this is akin to showing like a church or a synagogue blown up here in the West, where it's this a huge sign of disrespect to vandalize or destroy a holy building. And to me, it's kind of the same thing here with this uh, Tory gate where showing it ruined like that after giving it a couple of shots of showing it very clearly and how uh, uh, well-maintained it was early, and now it's just been destroyed by a bomb. It's like, yeah, you're you're tempting fate. You know, you're putting all, you know, they, these villagers have a lot of faith 
in their god coming to protect them. And understand that you don't believe that, but you're really tempting fate here by uh, the level of, uh, of disrespect that you are showing. We get a public execution scene. This is very similar to the first film where there was an execution scene where the warlord was trying to draw out um, the young daimyo that was in hiding. The daimyo or the prince or whomever was in hiding and they were trying to draw him out by having a public execution. This is a little bit different. Here they're having an execution where they're going to kill off uh, all the everyone who is a potential threat and uh, use this to bring all the villagers in line. I just think it's funny that both films had it. Again, not an uncommon element in a Chanbara film. Uh, this leads to them putting Sayuri onto the stake, and it's a crucifix that they put her on, and they tie her to the crucifix and then raise her up over this platform that's surrounded with uh, straw, and they light it on fire, and the idea to burn her at the stake and let her uh, burn to death is this great disrespect and this awful um, uh, execution that they're going to have on the princess, and that is what, of course, uh, is what is the impetus for Daimajin to rise up. We see the tears streaming down her face as she continues to pray that their god come and help them, and the tears hit the ground, and then there is an earthquake, because it's a Japanese uh, set film, so earthquakes not uncommon. Uh, there's a giant great earthquake, and all the ground starts shaking, and everyone says, uh, you know, oh, the god is coming, god is coming. And then we see Daimajin rise up out of the water and reveals his face. Now this, again, is done in the first film as well, where the statue has a placid stone face, and then Daimajin puts his hands in front of his face, and when he well, his hands go up above... Now his face is alive, and it's his. Uh, he looks. He looks like what you'd um, like on a, on a Japanese wood cutting, a classic bit of Japanese art. What a um, a samurai or specifically a shogun would look like. He's got the big frowning face, the big intense eyes, and he really looks pissed off. Daimajin always looks pissed off because if he's awake, bad stuff is going down. Uh, that happens right around the sixty-minute mark of the film. So we've gotten straight Chanbara with a few supernatural elements for the first hour, and now we're in the last 15 minutes, and now the spit really hits the fan. This is this is really neat. I've seen some stuff online about um, them tying Sayuri to a cross and the use of Christian imagery here to resurrect uh, what is ostensibly a Shinto-style deity because of the Tori Gate. Uh, you know, and, and there is something to be said about that. you got to remember also is that this was made in 1966. There was... Uh, obviously, there wasn't many Christians in Japan during the feudal era, obviously. But by 1966, there was Christianity in Japan. You know, uh, we famously said that one of uh, Ultraman's uh, most famous poses by crossing his uh, hands to do the specium ray is uh, an indication of the cross, and that was done intentionally. So I got to imagine this was done intentionally just to, um, you know, show some kind of symbolism for the grave peril and the, the awful thing being done to an innocent character in Sayuri by having her appear to be, um, visually appear to be crucified. Uh, and then, of course, since they didn't, as far as I know, didn't really do crucifixions, I think they'd hang you up and just let you hang up on a pole, usually, if they were going to do that. But to uh, uh, set fire to uh, the, the, the straw and have her burn at the stake is, uh, is very visual, it's very dynamic, and it really sells on just the, the absolute peril that she's in. And we'll come back to it in a few minutes as well, so I like that as well. Now, when Daimajin rises up, this scene is absolutely astounding, because he splits the lake like Moses parting the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments. It is amazing. In a low-budget little film like this, there's this amazing effect sequence of Daimajin actually splitting the lake, and you see the water 
walled up on either side of him. Again, not entirely unlike Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. And then him just standing there. It looks amazing in widescreen. It's beautiful. It is one of the most striking visual effects images that I have seen in the time I have done this show. And as I said, this is the first time I'm watching this film, so it really took me aback. If you take a look at the episode art for this episode, that's the image I went with. I had no choice. As soon as I saw it, I said, yes, I've got to screen cap that and put that up because it looks fantastic. And it's such a great bit to put over Daimajin's power. You know, we think about Daimajin as a big stone statue. Oh, he's going to smash things and he's going to crush things. But he's got a, he's, he's a deity. He's a god. So he can really, he can literally command the elements and make the water move aside from him so that he can walk to the village of Nagoshi and, uh, and, and exact vengeance for, uh, the wrongs done to his people. It's just a great visual and it's a fan, it's a, like I said, a great scene. Really, really good stuff. Um, as Daimajin makes landfall, the scenery, which had been, uh, very, uh, brightly lit, it was all, uh, shot natural light, sunlight. Uh, this, the execution, for instance, looks like it's in the middle of the day. So it's very bright sunlight. Everything becomes barren and desolate. Uh, it, it's, it's like the look you get, like maybe it's, uh, like the afternoon and it's sunny and there's a sudden squall and everything gets dark really quick and the temperature drops 10 degrees and the wind picks up. That's exactly what it looks like. He, it's almost as if Daimajin here is like a tsunami that's come out of nowhere to wreak, uh, terrible anger upon, uh, this village and, it's it's a great visual look that suddenly this this film that's been very I mean there's been I mean there's been some scenes at night but most of the film has taken place during the day under sunlight and now suddenly it's this uh, darkness and uh, man it, it's really effective because the tone changes completely and you knew this was coming you knew that Don Joe and his men were going to get theirs but now you're now it's real oh man it, you know that it has just gotten real up in here is the the the, the feeling you get seeing this. Um, when, uh, and as Daimajin approaches, we hear his footfalls, his boom, boom with each step. Now, this is interesting because most Showa films, with the exception of the original, uh, Godzilla in 54, and even then, that's only for part of the film, they don't do the footsteps. We don't hear monsters when they take steps, typically, in a Showa film. This was very famously changed in the first Heisei film, Godzilla 1984, that we did hear his footsteps. But here, when Daimajin is coming, you hear his footsteps, and everyone hears his footsteps. And they know, again, that stuff just got real because this god that they have disrespected and uh, disregarded and that they've, they've mocked the villagers for and that they're killing off his people, now he's here. And, you know, the, the writing, as they say, is on the wall, and, uh, and it's, it's, uh, time, it's a bad time for reckoning. You know, we talked about on Two True Freaks that there's no such thing as a King Kong atheist. Any Daimajin atheist just got uh, converted instantly. You know, there's uh, there's no atheist in foxholes, and there's no Daimajin atheist when the giant statue is walking towards you, ready to smash everything up. Um, there is a stone wall that is around the village of Nagoshi, and Daimajin punches his way through it. There's a great shot where we're looking from behind uh, Daimajin as he's hitting the wall, and he smashes through the wall, and the wall caves inwards. And then behind the wall is... Uh, you see all the, not only the villagers, but also the, um, uh, the soldiers that are getting ready to fight him. It's this really well done composite shot where it really does look nice that, especially again in widescreen where we see it, it's, it's not perfectly seamless. You can tell it's a composite, but for 66, it looks really good where they smash it through the wall and then behind the wall is all the people and everything that are getting ready to fight him. It's a really nicely done, uh, shot. And again, 
you know, smashing through the stone wall. That's and, and you know, you don't have uh, this isn't like even a, a show of film from the era where it's the post-war Japan. This is feudal Japan. So smashing a stone wall is a big deal. You know, that stone wall's probably been standing for hundreds of years in the story, and now Daimajin takes it out in 10 seconds. Uh, Lardanjo's men, some of them use grappling hooks to try and pull him down. This is funny, because he just kind of drags them along, and the ones that they've attached to parts of the build, to parts of the village buildings, he tears the village down. That It's this terrible wrath that defines Daimajin, and really, over the first two films, has what's set him apart from some of his brethren in the Daikaiju pantheon, is that, yes, he is coming. He does take Sayuri off of uh, out of the fire and put her down, so she's out of danger. But he's not there to save anyone. He's there to, ex- to exert wrath, and anything in his path is going to get destroyed. And so even though this village belongs to the, the faithful uh, Nagoshi, it, a lot of the village ends up getting destroyed because it, it's, he's like the nuclear option. If you have to call out Daimajin, it's so bad that you're willing to accept it because you have no other options. It's either Daimajin or it's, or, or you're done, you know? So this is really well done. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, just, just the, the feudal level destruction with this storm swirling behind him and everything. It's, it only lasts about, uh, maybe 10, 12 minutes all told, but it is a great sequence. And it's this great carthetic release to see all these guys that have been so cruel to the villagers get theirs. Like, we see Donjo's Chamberlain get his. He gets crushed by a giant boulder. We see all sorts of the uh, the evil soldiers getting smashed and stomped. It's really good stuff. Now, like any good rampaging warlord, as soon as the chips uh, the chips are down, Lord Donjo flees like a coward, gets on a boat, and tries to paddle away through the lake. And Daimajin comes up to the into the water and points at him, and then... A, uh, a bolt of energy kind of travels across across the water, and the boat catches fire. And we see Dunja scrambling up the mast trying to escape, and I'm not sure where he thinks he's going to go. But he gets tangled up in the ropes, and we see now he is the one crucified against the mast with his arms out to the side, and uh, overcome with smoke and fire before finally uh, dying, and then the boat sinks. So um, I, I do like the poetic... Uh, poetic execution of Lord Donjo. I'm always up for something like that, so that was very cool. And it's, a, again, a very striking scene where this this really awful guy who we saw kill Lord Hio on screen just stabs him with a spear, um, you know, when Hio won't allow uh, Donjo and his men to search the village for Jiro, um, you know, get his in such a visceral way. It's really satisfying as a viewer because he was such a scumbag. And, um, you know, and then his, you know, to, to go in the same way that he wanted to kill the innocent, uh, Sayuri is, is really appropriate. And it's that ironic, ironic punishment division. And I'm always a fan of ironic punishment division. Now, this is just a very well-made small budget samurai film that gets a huge dose of Daikaiju right at the end. As I said, it's very similar in style and setup to the original. But it has a shorter running time, about 75 minutes, whereas the other one was a little closer to 90 minutes. And the shorter runtime actually works in its favor, as we don't get bogged down in the third act. The first film uh, moved really well for the first two acts, and then the third act, there was a lot of this buildup before Daimajin showed up, and that I thought kind of bogged it down. Here, things move very quickly, and the pace is kept throughout the entire film. Uh, there's some really, really nice you know, samurai stuff to enjoy. Uh, before all hell breaks loose in the third act. Um, there's some fantastic visuals that are accomplished here. As I said, the parting of the lake waters is absolutely astounding. 
for a Japanese film in 1966, and not even from uh, from a smaller studio, from Dai. If Toho had done something like that, I could say, okay, well, Toho has the largest budgets. They have the best effects people. You know, Dai was was a smaller scale studio. They they didn't do this kind of stuff. And so to have such a, a great visual effect is really impressive, and especially for the time period. That that was really the standout moment of this film to me. And I that that they went there and not only first off it's cool from a story standpoint, but they went there and they pulled it off. And that's the cool thing. You know, it's always great to have a great idea. And I'll always give credit to filmmakers that have great ideas and great ideas for visuals and maybe get betrayed by the fact they don't have enough money to pull it off. But to have the resourcefulness to pull it off within your budget, that really is impressive. And that is a great, uh, very memorable scene. This film is very easily comparable to the Gamera films, which Dai was putting out at this time. Uh, 1966 also saw the release of Gamera vs. Barragan, which was uh, War of the Monsters, which had a serious tone, much like this film does. They had not um, devolved into the more childish fare that would come. So you could see Dai doing this. Kind of an interesting year, 1966, with uh, all three Daimajin films and Gamera vs. Barragan. It's some of, some of the best stuff that Dai did all came out in that same year, which is kind of interesting. Uh, absolutely worth watching, even if you've not seen the original. They're not directly related. You can watch this film on its own and not miss anything because they are kind of sequels in name only. And, uh, yeah, and you will enjoy it. This is a, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. Some of the, my favorite stuff to do on Earth Destruction Directive. Of course, I always like revisiting old favorites, but getting a chance to watch something I'd never seen before, that's, and, and then have it turn out to be so good, that's a real treat for me. So I, I hope that, uh, you guys seek this out too, because I think you'll enjoy it. Now, that said, both the Blu-ray triple feature and the DVD triple feature are out of print. You can find them on on uh, Amazon, uh, on the used section. You can find them. I think I saw the DVD or used the DVD set used for nine dollars um, uh, earlier today, and uh, so it is out there. The Blu-ray is a bit more. Uh, be warned on the DVD set. I think ADV put that out. And actually, they've got the titles of the two sequels reversed. So they refer to this film as Wrath of Daimajin and refer to the third film as Return of Daimajin. So uh, just make sure you're, you're picking the right one. Now, even though it is harder to find, this particular film is on YouTube in uncut dubbed form. So if you want to go check it out, I watched it on YouTube. It was more convenient this time, even though I do have the DVD set. But go seek it out on YouTube and, and check it out. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's an enjoyable uh, evenings entertainment of both, uh, you know, uh, hack and slash samurai and then, uh, you know, uh, smash and crash die kaiju right there at the end. Uh, like I said, I really enjoyed it and I'm glad I had an opportunity to watch it. Uh, what do you folks think? If you watch it or maybe you've seen this one already, what do you think about Return of Daimajin? What do you think about Daimajin in general? Uh, go ahead and write in Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. We can talk about that here on the show. All right. I think that just about does it for our film. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Thank you. 
eons past. A monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Godzilla number 14 from Marvel Comics was cover dated September 1978 and was released on or about June 6, 1978. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey, and it is a very nice cover. It uh, shows uh, Godzilla fighting the mega-monster Krolar, in the background, and then the foreground, we have the decapitated head of Red Ronin with, um, uh, we see Dum Dum Duggan and Gabe Jones and uh, Jimmy Woo and Tamara and uh, the prone form of Rob Takaguchi lying, uh, although he looks very old for Rob Takaguchi lying here at uh, at Red Ronin's, um, at, at come falling out of the eyeslit of Red Ronin. Very nice. Uh, cover. It's got a plain white background. It's about the only thing I don't like, but there's a lot going on in here, and there's a lot of depth in this cover. It's very nice, uh, very striking cover, and suitable um, because it, it does, in fact, pick up and show exactly a scene that uh, we get in the comic itself, which is always nice. Our writer was Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Our inker is Daniel Green. Letterer is Shelley Lefferman. Colorist Don Warfield. The editor, Jim Shooter. The title of our story is The Super Beasts. And our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. With the Red Ronin destroyed, Godzilla is the only force capable of stopping the now super-powered Mega Monsters. The S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla Squad provides Godzilla with support with their flying attack craft, while Jimmy Woo recovers the unconscious Rob Takaguchi from the head of Red Ronin. While aboard their base on the moon, the dying Batons watch the battle rage on. In order to maintain their life support as long as possible, they lower their base into the moon's surface as the Batons suffocate one by one. Back on Earth, the battle rages on, and Godzilla is able to destroy Krolar with some ground and pound, and then eliminate Triax by shooting atomic breath right down his gullet. Godzilla then saves Dum-Dum from Ryon, and then uses Ryon's own bioblade to behead the creature. With the Mega Monsters destroyed, the lone remaining Baton rejoices over Godzilla's victory, while the Megans decide to cease their war against the Batons. On Earth, the Godzilla Squad decides to let Godzilla go, vowing to capture him at a later date. Next issue, there's this bunch of cowboys, see? And they've got enough trouble with Ruspas, right? So what do you think happens when Godzilla decides to take a roam on the range? Wow, this is a very, very satisfying blow-off to this three-part story. Plenty of action, some good human stuff in there as well. Um, I'm just going to get right into it. So the cover, as I said, the cover has some really nice depth to it, as Dum Dum is large in the foreground. 
and then the humans get smaller as we go into the cover and towards the horizon. Uh, Gabe is smaller, and then uh, Jimmy is smaller, and then Tamara, and so forth. And then the Red Ronin's head is giant, as it should be. So, you know, the human figures that are right next to Red Ronin's head are dwarfed by it. And then behind that, we get Godzilla and Krolar, and they, in turn, dwarf not only the buildings of the city, but also Red Ronin's head. So I really like the depth here, a nice sense of scale and perspective as we're looking at the cover. Uh, page one is very similar to the cover, um, as we get the uh, head of Red Ronin right in the foreground with um, uh, Rob Takaguchi uh, falling out of the eye with Godzilla then in the background. Uh, very striking image, I think, to have the decapitated head of Red Ronin front and center, but it was such a striking scene in the last issue that it's not real surprising that they'd go with it. I really applaud that choice. This is a very nice splash page, and I, I do like the, we get to see some of the inner uh, mechanical workings of Red Ronin. Um, it's not like a Kirby Tech sort of thing. It, it looks a little more realistic, so I think that was a, a nice touch, too. Another little detail is on the left-hand side of the panel. We do have a, uh, a telephone pole that is being snapped underneath Godzilla's foot almost, uh, um, you know, inadvertently. Godzilla does not even notice it. Turning over now to uh, page three, panel five, we get a really nice use of scale once again as um, Tamara and uh, Jimmy are trying to get Rob out of Red Ronin's head. Coming down the street at them is Triax, and he is stampeding right towards them. And all of them, even Red Ronin's head, looks very small relative to Triax because the, the Mega Monsters are a little bit bigger now, now that they've been powered up. And it, so, it, again, it's really nice perspective. It's just big thing coming at these small things. In fact, Triax is so big that his flanks are actually pushing the buildings in their middle, like wedging them out of the way. That's how big he is. He's shoving his way through. So you can imagine the scene of a big, wide monster pushing his way through a city block and pushing the buildings out in the side and smashing them out because of his massive girth. It's very nice. Over now on uh, page six, uh, panel one, um, this is where the Shield Godzilla squad gets into the act. And here, Dum Dum flies in in one of their attack craft, and he actually blasts a building to basically drop it on Triax in order to stop him from crushing uh, the group that's trying to rescue Rob Takaguchi. Uh, this is a really, I, what I really like in this panel is the way, again, that Triax roars back in pain. Because you can see his eye stalks are kind of flailing back. His mouth is wide open. And so you can imagine him, uh, you know, just crying out in pain as a building is toppled on him. Um, it's a really nice panel because also down the bottom, we see some detail. There's an overturned car. Red Ronin's head is still in the panel. So we do actually get that continue the sense of location of where everything is. There's some continuity in the storytelling there. This reminded me, this scene of them hitting a building and dropping on the monster uh, naturally reminds me of, I mentioned uh, this film in the other segment, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah from 1991, where the Mecha King Ghidorah, uh, Lamy and M11 do the same thing. They, they blast buildings to topple them on Godzilla. So I thought that was kind of an interesting coincidence here. Uh, further on down the page, panel four, uh, Krolar uses his, uh, vacuum attack where he sucks in some stuff and we see him shooting debris out of his mouth on Godzilla. Godzilla is rearing back. He, it's almost like he's falling, uh, backwards. His arms are both up by his shoulders. His head is straight back. And again, it, it's a great depiction by Trimpy showing the, um, the damage that it's doing to Godzilla. We also get some nice impact 
Uh, so it's a big uh, patch of red right on his chest with a lot of uh, inked hash marks all around it. So um, uh, Don Warfield using the red to pop the impact. It's a really nice panel here. Uh, and again, it, it's all out monster war. There's no quarter given in this fight and there's none asked for. It's really good stuff from a storytelling standpoint. Speaking of which, on the next page, page seven, panel two, we see, well, panels one and two, we see Ryan sneak up behind Godzilla in the air, and he grabs a hold of him, uh, grabs a hold of Godzilla's shoulders with his forelimbs, and uh, Godzilla's not having any of that crap, so he actually tail chops him right over his head, basically whips his head, excuse me, whips his tail up over his head and tail chops Ryan and sends him flying forward. Uh, Godzilla is not having any of that. So I really like that the tail chops have been really good in this story. And that's another good one right here. We turn over now to uh, page 10, panel 2, as Triax uses his battering ram attack yet again. This is, you know, it's his one trick, but he's really good at it. And what's interesting here is it's kind of a double team because after he hits the uh, battering ram attack, Krolar then rams Godzilla from underground. Um, and on and panel 3, and so in panel 3, Godzilla's face is all pinched up like his eyes are shut and his mouth is kind of grimacing so again it's a really a really good monstrous reaction and trippy's been really kind of hitting out of the park in this uh this issue but this, this storyline in general about showing the monsters reacting to being hit and not just they're not stoic in any way they're definitely you know sh uh, behaving in a very animalistic way as they're they're, they're fighting uh for their lives here uh, page 11 is our space opera interlude as our Baytons slowly suffocate to death as their uh, base loses air. Um, you know, again, we're just going to skip over that. But it's it's not bad stuff. It's just that we're here for the monster action. They're watching all the life-size monitors, which is kind of interesting, of all of the, uh, of the monsters fighting. So we'll turn now over to page uh, 14, panel 5, which is a, it's right in the middle of the page. It's about a third of the height, and it's the full width. And it really... It's really the full-scale battle as S.H.I.E.L.D. joins into the fight once again because we see all four of the monsters and both attack crafts and we see the city and it just really kind of sets the stage. This is a very cinematic sort of panel, especially with the wide uh, aspect here. You can see this on a, a you know, thinking it's like 1.78 to 1 or 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio and you can just see the, the full vista of the city with the monsters fighting and then the two S.H.I.E.L.D. crafts coming in um, you know, going into the screen. Uh, I, it's a really nice little panel. It's just a transitional panel here. There's no action in it, really, other than the ships flying, but I really like it, how it sets up the story, and like I said, it's a very cinematic, well-done uh, image here. Uh, on the next page, page 15, panel 3, I put over the tail chops, and once again, Godzilla breaks one out where he schwumps Krolar with a big tail chop here, and uh, once more... Um, and the coloring has to get some credit. Ward, Don Warfield using a giant platch of yellow with plenty of uh, ink in there from Daniel Green to show all the impact as as he just as Godzilla just unloads on Krolar with this tail chop. And this is the beginning of the end for Krolar because as we go further down the page, uh, panel four, Krolar actually clamps on to Godzilla's midsection with his sucking attack. And he, I mean, if you saw, he has those, that row of, or circle of sharp teeth in his mouth, and Godzilla kind of rears back a bit, but then he uh, absolutely unloads on him with a point blank range, a point blank range attack of atomic fire, and you can see Krolar is hurting. He is uh, just kind of lying limp here, and he falls down on his back. And Godzilla puts his foot right on his chest, 
Um, you know, this is, uh, and he's, you can see him just kind of stomping him down, which leads to the next page, which is page uh, 16, panel 3. Godzilla is now on top of him uh, with a ground and pound. And he, he has now Godzilla, we're looking at it from the profile, and we can see Godzilla's right hand is in a fist, like a hammer fist. So it's pretty easy to imagine him pounding Krolar from above like an MMA fighter. You know, in an MMA uh, type of match, if you get your opponent on his back, you're going to hammer fist, hammer fist, use gravity to your advantage and drive down. Well, that's what Godzilla's doing here. And, uh, Krolar is, is just not moving. And we see this, his limbs kind of akimbo as Godzilla just unloads on him. And that's the end of Krolar. Uh, very nice, uh, sequence here with Godzilla using his physicality to take out one of his enemies. Now, later on down that page in panel six, um, Triax comes in for another attack and Godzilla actually blasts him with the atomic breath in midair. And once more, with the monstrous reactions, we see Triax wincing in pain. His eyes are kind of squeezed shut. His mouth is, uh, you know, open in, uh, in his roared defiance here. Um, and once more, with the use of yellow and red this time from uh, Warfield to show the impact. I've really liked that. You know, they've, they've put over the beams, um, the beam impacts in this, uh, and then the, the projectile attack impacts in, in this comic with using all the color. And it really makes it pop. You know, there's there's some backgrounds that are odd choices. Like, this has got a pink sky in it, but it's very colorful and very bright. And it, it really kind of sells the War of the Monsters type of vibe that we're getting here. On uh, page 17, um, panel 4, Triax is... It looks like he's retreating, but he actually is coming back around for another battering ram attack. And so Godzilla blasts Triax right down his open mouth with the atomic breath. This, of course, always brings me to Godzilla killing the Muto in Godzilla 2014. Uh, this, uh, you know, massive impact. And what's funny is at first I thought that he had actually, Godzilla had actually blasted atomic breath right through Triax, and it's coming out the back, but those are actually his his uh, boot jets. Remember, Triax has um, jets built into the back, his rear legs, so it lets him fly. So they're actually, uh, it's he's hitting that while he's charging at Godzilla. He actually spirals out like a uh, like a uh, fighter plane that's lost an engine and crashes into the ground. And then you uh, he actually ends up on his back, his legs sticking up, smoking, smoke pouring out of his mouth, and both his eye stalks just spread out either way. Um, yeah, he, ouch is all I have to say. Godzilla took out Triax with uh, with with extreme prejudice. I think is probably the best way to say that. Uh, turning over now, we get a few ads here in the middle. Turn over now to page uh, 22. This is Dum Dum and Gabe versus Ryan. So this reminds me very much of a sequence of how the Science Patrol or the Ultra Garrison would fight the monster at about the, uh, you know, the 14 minute mark of a episode of Ultraman or Ultra 7 before our hero shows up, but flying around in their craft and attacking. It's a pretty nice little sequence with, uh, Gabe actually getting grabbed uh, excuse me, Dum Dum's craft getting grabbed by Ryan, and Ryan's trying to eat it, and then Gabe makes a save with his, and then they're both able to fly away, which opens up the fight uh, to Godzilla on uh, page 23. And in fact, panel one of that page, Godzilla blasts Ryan in the back with the atomic breath, and we get another impact color this time. It's kind of a pinkish background, and then a magenta on the impact as he hits uh, Ryan right in the middle of his back. And, um, you know, turns and before Ryan turns around to counterattack. Now, the sequence here is very interesting because, um, Ryan actually grabs, he's still holding Dum Dum's craft and he, and he throws it at Godzilla and Godzilla catches it and then puts it down. 
Now, this, to me, struck me as a very sort of Showa-era response from Godzilla. In the Showa era, Godzilla did not turn on his allies. He helped his allies. Now, he didn't usually have help directly from a man. Um, the one that popped right into my mind is at the end of Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, where they have the electrode set up um, uh, to dry out uh, Hedra, and they don't work, and Godzilla drags Hedra over and uses the human's thing. So he was still helping the humans out. So here... I get the feeling that Godzilla sees Dum Dum and Gabe as his allies because they're fighting the monsters, much like he didn't attack Red Ronin in the last issue because Red Ronin was not attacking him. Uh, so him putting uh, Dum Dum down, like I said, I think really speaks to the late show a 1970s era of this story. And I like it in this story. I wouldn't buy it from a Heisei era Godzilla story, but here in the 70s, I think it works. And it, it does lead to some character stuff for Dum Dum later on of the series here, but I do like it. it. It is, I mean, it is a little odd that Godzilla just grabs him and just puts him down on the ground. But at the same time, it does also show that Godzilla is not just an animal. He does have an intelligence uh, to him as a monster, not just a, a beast. Now, this leads us over to page 26, where the first three panels are just more monster combat. Uh, Ryan comes um, from behind on Godzilla and just takes a huge chomp with his giant uh, saucer-like mouth on Godzilla. And his teeth, are you can essentially see them sinking into Godzilla's flesh all the way from like his pectoral muscle on his neck and then up to um, kind of like the, the hinge on his jaw. And Godzilla is just screaming out in pain. And uh, all you Rob Liefeld fans, he's actually got some spittle between his teeth, which is a nice touch. But the great Huge impact here, and again, a pink and magenta impact uh, color bursting this um, as he uh, as he gets chomped on here. Um, this leads to the next panel where Godzilla actually grabs Ryan's jaws and spreads them apart like King Kong and the Tyrannosaurus to get himself free, and then slams him to the ground in panel three. Uh, bright colors really highlight the impact, but the bite in panel one, and the slam in panel three really look painful for the monster on the receiving end. I mean, he gets a wham as Ryan is thrown into the ground with this orange, almost color of explosion around him as he just hits it square on the ground from Godzilla's attack. I really like this sequence here because it really is a back and forth. I mean, Godzilla's not dominating. He is in a fight for his life against these monsters here, and he's taken two of them out, but is he worn out enough that Ryan's going to get the best of him here. So there's some, there's some real, um, you know, I don't want to say tension because it's not tension, but there's some real monster drama in this fight. It's very well paced and the back and forth. Neither side has been in, in control of the battle. So it really sells it as a, an all-out monster war here. This pushes us over to page uh, 27 in the first three panels. We see Godzilla actually pressing Ryan above his head and then very slowly push his spinning tail blade into Ryan's neck and chop his head off. Yikes. Yikes is all I say. It's a good thing that these are monsters, so you can show this sort of violence in a code book in the 70s. Oh my gosh. I mean, as purely and outright shocking as the Red Ronin decapitation was in the last issue, this one is more so. I mean, in panel three, you see like little bits of Ryan flesh flying off where the blade chops through the neck. I mean... Yikes. Just yikes. I mean, great finale here with Godzilla getting, uh, you know, finally taking out the last of the, uh, 
uh, of the of the mega monsters here and standing triumphant. But man, what a way to go! Great little sequence here. Uh, further on down the page, this one is for my brother and for other uh, listeners. Uh, and fans of the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, the National Guard commander looks like the general from the end of the Monster Squad. All right, son, where are the monsters? <laughs> uh, turning over now to page 30, we get our final space opera interlude as the last Baton, um, you know, before he uh, he also suffocates, is glad to see that they peace and uh, may be achieved because they've managed to stop the Megans. And then on the Megan homeworld, they decide, you know what, maybe our war should also, um, you know, and our, is there any, he says, yes, perhaps our war with the Batons should also be terminated at long last. After all, are there any among us who are not tired? Sometimes you need to just have a resolution, and uh, I think this is a good one, that uh, everyone's tired of fighting. Aren't you tired of pointless battles at this point? So I, I like this a little resolution to our space opera. And then finally on page 31, um, as the commander of the National Guard uh, pitches a fit that nobody is trying to stop Godzilla, Dum Dum and Gabe have a bit of a heart to heart, which I like. And so we're actually getting some, some, uh, you know, character development insofar as his attitude towards Godzilla from, from Dum Dum. And it's not just Gabe and Dum Dum arguing like it was kind of, uh, oh, during the Yetrigar storyline and, and a little bit earlier than that. So I, I like this ending. Um, you know, it's a little, a little corny where, uh, where Dum Dum says, what monster? I don't see any monster. And Gabe says that Dum Dum deserves a big grin and a soft pat on the back. Dum Dum says, maybe Jones, maybe it does, but don't you dare say I told you so. Cause I got a sneaking hunch that me and my new pal just might not like it. So I, Dum Dum calling Godzilla his pal. I mean, obviously he's being a little sarcastic here, but I do, I, th- I thought this was a, a, a good way to have the human ending, uh, carry it as Godzilla wanders off, um, into the wilderness here. So, uh, this really is a heck of a way to finish up the story. There's action aplenty, great use, uh, of both the monster characters and the human characters, a nice balance between them. And it has our human characters getting involved in a way that makes sense and not just kind of standing off on the sidelines bemoaning it or otherwise being ineffective or having the behemoth get wiped out or something like that. So I, I really liked having Gabe and Dum Dum get really into the action with their little shield attack craft. That was very nice. Uh, frankly, this has been the best storyline in this series so far. I mean, I've, there's been other issues I've liked. The Vegas one jumps to mind immediately as just a really standout single issue. But as far as an, uh, an overarching storyline, this has been the best one. It's great stuff. I'm glad that it was given three issues instead of maybe just two issues to really spread its legs a bit and introduce the conflict. And we also get, let's not forget, the first issue also we got the Beta Beast. So we got another cool monster to go with the three Mega Monsters. So you know, it, it, it really, it, it deserves that three-issue story and it puts it to good use. And uh, even though there's a lot of combat, a lot of monster fighting, we get some nice human stuff, both with Rob Takaguchi kind of behaving in a more mature manner and really trying to help. And uh, then now with the shield, Godzilla shield team here, plus there's a just great moment. So I really enjoyed this storyline and I'm very eager, of course, I can always say I'm very eager to see where the story goes from here, but this is a high note and I'm really, really glad that I got a chance to read these. Um, now, as always, this issue is collected in Essential Godzilla. 
Flipping through the comic here, we don't have a letters page this time. Uh, we do have a bullpen bulletins. And it is very interesting because it actually uh, applies to something we've covered here on Earth Destruction Directive. And Stan Soapbox says, Know something? I've got to learn to speak Japanese. All of a sudden, Marvel is threatening to become the latest and greatest in thing in the land of the rising sun. There are special Japanese version Marvel movies being produced. Specially adapted Marvel Comics, toys, games, and for all we know, even Sam Spider-Man Samurai Warriors. We know there are Shogun Warriors, because we're preparing a great new Shogun mag right now, but it's still a secret, so don't let on I told ya. So, see, yeah, there you go. Shogun Warriors getting a name drop here in Stan Soapbox. Anyway, just to totally obfuscate the issue, see if you can figure this one out. Three wise and witty words are being written for you in the beginning of March in order to get them printed in time to go on sale in June. Now stay with me, you hear? I'm heading for Japan in the middle of May, which is a couple of months from now. Now, being the time I'm writing this, I'm busting to tell you about my trip, but I can't because I haven't gone yet. Although by the time you read this, I'll have been back for about a month. See why I'm always mixed up? See why we always tell you that Marvel time is different than real world time? See why, when somebody asks me the date, I panic and run for the hills? But now, before you get too emotional about this, let's welcome all our Japanese friends on board, and to all of them, and all of you, the mighty voices of Marveldom, assembled, now cry, Yoi tomo daichi nina rina moshe, naka yoku shima shoshu, which, as all true believers know, means, let's all, let us all be good friends. And if the omnipotent Odin will return the Silver Surfer's curling iron to him, one of these days I'll teach you how to say it in English. Excelsior, Stan. So it's very interesting to, to see, of course, a, uh, a name drop of the Shogun Warriors or an impl implied name drop of the Shogun Warriors here in Godzilla. I knew it was going to happen eventually. And also Stan referring to the Tawai Supaida Man uh, show, which uh, was right around this time as well. So very cool to see that in the bullpen bulletins. Also very cool is that we have a house ad right uh, right near the middle of the book. And on the bottom half of the house ad is uh, Spider-Woman. To know her is to fear her. Spider-Woman, of course, has the coolest and most fabulous head of hair in comics. And then on the top half of the uh, page is another um, house ad, this time saying uh, advertising the all-new Double Dynamite from Jack King Kirby. And on the left-hand side is Machine Man, the living robot, who, of course, was introduced in the pages of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But more uh, pressing and more pertinent to EDD is Devil Dinosaur on sale monthly. And we get this great Kirby uh, uh, image of, of Devil with Moon Boy riding on his back. And we will be covering Devil Dinosaur in the future. I am a huge Devil Dinosaur fan. Uh, that was one from my childhood. I remember getting an issue of Devil Dinosaur while on vacation and just absolutely uh, just reading it and reading it over and over. But of course, by that time, the series was long since uh, gone as this was back in the 80s, and then getting the, uh, the omnibus and just tearing through it in about a day. Great stuff. So very much looking forward to covering Devil Dinosaur when we're done with Godzilla, but man, it's really cool to get that house ad there. So uh, that's about all I've got for this issue. As I said, it's uh, reprinted in Essential Godzilla. Um, and of course, if you hunt forage, I'm sure you could find the the, the uh, single issue like I've got here. Uh, have you folks read this one? What do you think about the Mega Monster storyline? Did you enjoy the blow off to it like I did, or would you have gone in a different way? Uh, why don't you send me an email, Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com, and we can talk about it here on the air. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to wrap up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jason Jacanetti. 
You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and I hold in my hand the listener feedback. So if you would like to be in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook, and all that information is in the outro to the show. So let's get right into our first email, which comes from a good friend of the show and loyal listener, Jack Vaughn. And Jack writes, Godzilla, Team Baton or Team Veronica? I mean, Megan. Megan? And uh, <laughs> Jack writes, This is the stuff. A monster fighting worse monsters for the sake of other monsters. Well, aliens, but still monsters. It interrupts Godzilla's American tour, but I didn't think he was going to come right through Ohio anyway. We'd been teased with this story for years, decades, before the reprint. The handbook of the Marvel Universe alien race pages listed the Batons and the Megans and their war of monsters. Sorry, I don't know of any further appearances of this of these aliens. Well, you know, I think we, um, you know, the they. I don't. I'm not aware of any other appearances of them either. Uh, and from the end of this storyline, it looks like this might have been the intention was that we don't see them anymore. I don't know if maybe they crop up in the background of some like in Guardians of the Galaxy. Sometimes you'd have like at uh, Nowhere Station, there'd be a bunch of aliens and stuff. Maybe one of them popped up in the background somewhere there, but I'm not aware of any either. Jack continues. You are really selling the color version of this comic over the essential. I had been satisfied with black and white, but this weekend I checked at the local comic shop and a couple not-so-local ones for back issues. No luck yet. Yeah, the colors have really been nice. I thought the same thing about Shogun Warriors, and I really do enjoy the color. Having the black and white is nice, and it's real convenient, because I love black and white art, and I love the essentials and the showcase formats for that reason, because I like black and white art so much. But the colors on these have just popped so nicely. And one of the things about monsters is that monsters can be any color so and then you get all these energy attacks and you get explosions so there's a lot of opportunity to do interesting things with color that you don't necessarily get to do in a book where let's say like fantastic four where you know we know what their uniforms look like we know what a lot of their tech looks like at this point you know they have recurring villains we know what color dr doom is and stuff like that so i think the color um it just in a, in a, any time, and it's the same in, in film and television too, in a giant monster film or television show, you can play with color and you can do that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's well suited to the medium. And I know I am selling the color, uh, co- copies over the, the, uh, essential. If they would just do a hardcover omnibus in color, we'd be in business. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. Space, uh, Jack continues. I lean more to the opinion that less is best. If it gets too crowded, especially if nebulas aren't treated as deep background objects, but wind around yellow moons, orange stars, green clovers, blue diamonds, and purple horseshoes, it starts to look more like a Ditko dimension than outer space. 
Around this time in the Star Wars comic, they would lay up the black ink in a panel or two and color space blue, or more oddly, green, red, or yellow. The stars in those panels were each outlined with a black circle. I imagine Fred Keita here also circled each star before laying the black ink around it. Wow! New respect for his workload. Signed, Jack. Um, first off, Jack, thank you again for writing in. I, I know you're digging the Godzilla comics as much as I am here. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, the, when, when I think about, like, the, the really full depiction of space, a lot of times I think, like, Ron Lim and his stuff from the 80s, like Silver Surfer and stuff like that. And, and I always kind of picture his space as being really full of stuff. And there's kind of two ways you can go with it. If it's too sparse, yeah, it sells the great big emptiness of space, which is actually very accurate. But to me, that's not as visually interesting. That's not much different than just having everybody on plain color backgrounds. I, a big pet peeve here on the Two True Freaks Network. But if you go too much, like you say, it starts looking like a Lucky Charms bowl. And uh, now I'm hungry, so thank you very much for that. Um, which is, isn't the right tone either. I mean, it looks more uh, lurid and it looks more fantastical, almost pulpish when you have those, um, you know, the big full space backgrounds and stuff. But I think that uh, Trimpy and Kita did a real good job balancing it out on on that issue. And showing us, um, you know, a, a space that was not just empty, but it wasn't so crammed full of stuff that it came comical either. So, uh, Jack, thank you very much for writing in. Glad you are enjoying the show. Our next email comes from our loyal listener, Rich S. It is entitled Two Episodes. And Rich writes, Two Episodes in less than a month. Once again, you spoil your listeners. Well, you see, Rich, I try to balance it out because you have to listen to me. So that's already like a negative. You know, so I try to give you good content to make up for the fact that you got to listen to me, but, you know, be that as it may. Rich continues, I'm grateful you chose to put out the abbreviated episode number 57 instead of waiting longer to put out a full-length one. The Mega Monster issues are really a high point for the Marvel God Zero series. I remember getting issue 12 in the mail when I was a kid and loving every page of it. Well, every page except the four-page advertisement in the middle of the fight with the Beta Beast. I removed that right away. At the time, I didn't understand the concept of collectability, but I did understand that a giant ad was messing up the monster action. Um, I do want to say that, yes, my copy of, I don't remember if it's issue 12 or 13, one of them had that four-page ad section removed from the middle, so it jumps from, like, page 12 to 19. I'm like, oh, crap, did I did I miss some of the story? And I so I counted the story pages, and it's like, no, I didn't miss any of the story. <laughs> I think I think that was 13, actually, but yeah. And putting ads right in the middle, that's just ask people to take them out, isn't it? Uh, Rich continues, thanks also for the great point-by-point review of issue number 13. I'm fairly certain you'll enjoy the end of the story next issue, and as you just heard, yes, I did. So you were right on the money there, Rich. When it comes to comics and kaiju, we seem to be very much on the same page. So much so that I feel I must ask again, I must, excuse me, I must again ask, slash suggest, slash plead, that you review something I love. This time, it's the big G-related issues of the Avengers and the issues leading up to number 200. Avengers, um, oh, let me try that again. This time, it's the big G-related issues of the Avengers. In the issues leading up to number 200, Avengers featured Red Ronin as a villain. Much like Fantastic Four 226, these issues took care of some loose plot threads, namely what happened to Ronan after his head was restored. Looking forward to more Godzilla and more next time. Signed, Rich S. Uh, Rich, first off, again, thank you very much for writing in. Um, I, I totally want to cover those Avengers issues. I've just got to figure out if I have them. Uh, that That's kind of the key thing for me. Because I have, I think I have every 
um, volume of Essential Avengers. And I want to say they covered two, past 200 in those, but I am not 100% sure and I don't have them, uh, I don't have them here to check them at the moment. But yes, I, I, I do want to cover those, um, uh, kind of epilogue issues, much like you say Fantastic Four 226 was the epilogue to Shogun Warriors. I very much would like to cover, um, Avengers, uh, I think it was 198, 199. Those are the ones you've linked here in the PS. I think those are the only two issues. I'd like to cover them. I just gotta see if I have them. And, uh, that, and I've got a little bit of time because we're only on, uh, 14. So we've got 10 more issues of Godzilla before we get to them. So I've got some time. So, uh, and in that interim, I am going, uh, planning on going to SC Comic Con, which is, uh, um, you know, the kind of up, up and coming con here in the upstate of South Carolina. So if nothing else, I can probably hunt, try and hunt them down there if push came to shove. I didn't already have them in the essentials. Probably want to get them anyway, since I've, you know, that we had the singles, which is always, you know, always a, a boom. So again, thank you very much guys for writing in. If you would like to email the show, please send email earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Uh, whatever you want to talk about, it's giant monster related. We'll talk about it here on EDD. So what are we covering next time? Well, we are getting back into the swing of the Showa Godzilla series. And the next film in that that we're going to be covering is Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Now that we are uh, have done our space movies for a little while, we're going to take a turn to the South Seas. And the first one of those features Godzilla fighting the evil organization Red Bamboo and their giant shrimp slash lobster slash crab slash thing, Ibera. Very much looking forward to that. We also have the next issue of Marvel's Godzilla, which is number 15, which um, is going to be apparently a value guanji type story from the uh, what they teased us with the cowboys and rustlers so cowboys and dinosaurs you know that's hey that's value guanji right uh we'll also have any news on uh, rampage or pacific rim uprising or godzilla playing with the monsters or anything else daikaiju media related we'll have your emails of course uh and anything else that comes up in the interim so i'd like to say to everyone thank you for listening to the episode i hope you enjoyed it please come back next time and until then keep them stomping This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. 
I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible more frightening than I ever thought possible.